If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, Galatians chapter five is going to be a text that we will eventually land on. And you get extra credit this morning if you can find Galatians five and you can find first Peter chapter two and hold them both at the same time, because we're going to kind of flip between them, but it's just going to take us a minute to get there. We're two days away from our country's annual celebration. And as I've been thinking about our country over the last few weeks, there's been a question that just keeps coming up over and over and over again for me. Uh, we normally don't kind of stop what we're, we're studying, but we are going to take a little break from the gospel of Luke today to try to answer this question because it's one that just keeps popping back up in my mind. What is wrong with America? You know, for many years, our country was seen as an example to a lot of people of what it meant to live in freedom. And we were considered to be a light set up on a hill shining out into the darkness. And it's different today, it seems to me. Not to say that our country was always correct because it certainly hasn't been. But what's amazing about the American experience is that most of the time, if you give us long enough, we will make chaos come to order and we'll fix the mess somehow. It just takes us a minute to get there. So what's wrong with the country? I want to ask you to bear with me for a moment, but I want to read something that was written 247 years ago by a bunch of rabble rousers. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Thomas Jefferson, who would become the third president of the United States, was tasked with writing this document, the Declaration of Independence by Continental Congress. And this document, along with our Constitution and the Bill of Rights, really are the foundational documents of the country. And when he was asked to write this, he's really, if you read the entire Declaration of Independence, he's really addressing one by one these grievances that the country had, or the colonies, I should say, had, with the king and with England. We hold these truths to be self-evident, he says. What he means is no one needs to look around for that. Everybody gets it. It's, it's clear. It almost sounds like what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter one when he says, everybody knows that there's a God. You can see it from creation. You get it. He's saying there's something about what God has put in us that we know these things. All men are created equal. The colonists wrote these words because they were tired of simply being subjects to a crown. And yet, in the frailty of their humanity, they didn't get it. It would take them more than 100 years almost for African-Americans to be considered created equal and almost 150 years for Native Americans to be considered equal in this country. I told you it was a mess, but that sometimes it just took a while and we would sort it out. The next line says, these things are endowed by a creator with certain unalienable rights, which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when you read that line, it becomes clearer and clearer to understand what's wrong with America. Rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have changed in the modern vocabulary to mean something very different. When the founders of our country began to write the Declaration of Independence, they were attempting to form a case 
for liberty because their liberties had been denied. If you read the full text, you see those grievances one by one. They're arguing that every person has God-given rights that can't be trampled on by a government. They define those as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life meaning you could live without fear. Liberty, as it was later used in the Constitution, meaning freedom from arbitrary and unreasonable restraint on an individual. Liberty included rights that were protected like free speech, freedom of worship, due process in court cases, freedom of the press, and freedom to self-defense. The pursuit of happiness is language that Jefferson borrowed from a philosopher named John Locke. When John Locke wrote about the pursuit of happiness, he's arguing not for the momentary, momentary things that would just seem to make you happy, do whatever you want to be happy. He's arguing that there's something greater than that. There's a moral and intellectual ideal towards happiness that's for the greater good. It has a compass. Where did the founding fathers grasp these ideas? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17 might give us a clue. Now the Lord is the spirit where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Other translations say, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When you think about the difference between liberty and freedom, it's really important. Liberty allows us to live in the best way possible, and the law is based upon that. But liberty doesn't protect every freedom that is known to man. You, you can't just imagine what you wanna do and assume that it's going to be protected, that that freedom should be protected. When Paul wrote the Corinthian church this, He's saying the same thing, the Lord is spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the spirit of the Lord is present, you find freedom. I think it's important we take a few minutes to extrapolate on that. There was something important that happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. And you often probably don't think about it because we have such a New Testament bent to our understanding of the scripture as we should. But there were some things that happened. If you remember, it said when Christ was crucified, several interesting phenomena happened. It said that the sky went dark. Do you remember that? It said that the earthquake, the rocks broke apart. It said that the tombs gave up their dead and some of those people appeared to those who were in Jerusalem. But it also said that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I want you to think about that because that's very, very important. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there was freedom. But before that, there was not. There was not free access to the Father. There was something standing in your way that only the high priest could go in and make that offering and worship the Lord. But what he's saying to us, and it's important that we understand, is that when God saved us, and Matthew 28 records all of these events for you if you want to read them. There was something that happened. It changed our relationship with the Lord. The significance is incredible. That separation was literal and figurative, and it's been set aside. And we now have access to the Father to live in freedom in the relationship that we have in Christ. There's nothing standing in our way. Listen to how the author of Hebrews states it. Hebrews 4, verse 16, he says, Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, that would have been unthinkable to someone in the Old Testament. There was no way for them to approach the throne. They were literally shut out, but now they have freedom. The Holy Spirit has given us access to this, and we're no longer enslaved. Free from what? Free from sin. You may not think you were enslaved to sin, but before you met Christ, 
you were held in bondage to sin. The Bible says we were slaves to sin. And the freedom that we have been afforded allows us now, like liberty, to live the best life possible that God created for us. But that doesn't mean that our freedom and the liberty that God grants us is a free-for-all without restraint. That would be a mistake. Paul deals with this over and over again in the book of Romans as he tells Christians not to give in to their sin. And it may have been that some were asking, well, now that we're saved, what difference does it make how we live? I've got my ticket punched to heaven. I'm good. I can live however I want to. And that's just not the case. It wasn't the case. Paul says it matters how we live. The difference is that now we have the liberty to pursue the best life that God has given us in Christ. But if you step outside those freedoms that God has granted to us, you're out of step with God. And so we mentioned the Declaration of Independence and we mentioned that the king and the government of England had effectively trampled the liberties the people were given. And our constitution grants you some freedoms that are really important. For instance, you have the freedom to assemble, but you don't have the freedom once you're assembled to start a riot and destroy property. You have the freedom to speak, but you can't write your speech wherever you want to. That's called graffiti and vandalism. There are limits to the freedom that you've been granted. And it's the same way with the Lord. Once you came to know him, you were given freedom more than you could have possibly imagined. Even if you felt like you were free to do whatever you want, you weren't, you were enslaved to sin. But in our freedom, there's limitations. Let's look at Galatians chapter five. Because Paul describes our freedom as believers really beautifully. He says, you were called to be free in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. To understand freedom means that we understand that it originates somewhere outside of us. It originates with the creator, God the Father. And God has placed limitations on that freedom. It's not just a free-for-all with with no restraint. You're simply not free to do whatever you want to do. Now, you might decide tomorrow in Nashville traffic that there's a driver who's really getting on your nerves. And if you just kind of NASCAR them and nudge them out of the way, your life would be better. You're free to do it, but you will face the consequences, right? You, you, you have the ability to do it, but you're out of step, you see. And Paul is speaking about this, that, that our actions have consequences. And this is what's happening in our country right now. There's a massive debate that's taking place over what is freedom and what it means for us. And in our country, for the first time since really the 60s, we're trying to redefine again freedom as it's whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, I do it, get out of the way. But there's a problem. You hear people say that. I hear people say that. But they're throwing off the limitations of freedom. So for instance, today, we say things like, it's my body, so it's my choice. Is it really? Or were you bought with a price? The blood of Jesus Christ. My body, my choice, is it it really? We say things like this and we encourage people. Just love who you love. Love is wonderful no matter how you do it, how you express it. It's wonderful, is it? 
or is there a restraint? We say things like, we don't want to see any laws that would restrict doctor-assisted suicide. Well, how do we know which freedoms we should support? And how do we know which freedoms are out of bounds? How do we sort through it? Well, I find this passage in Galatians chapter 5 really insightful and instructive to us. It helps us because Paul begins telling this group of believers, you were called to freedom. That means they were called out of enslavement. And then he immediately follows it up by saying, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity to sin. Ooh, there's a restraint here. I have freedom, but I can't cross the line and go into my flesh. Now, what's the flesh? The flesh is the old nature before you were in Christ. The Bible says the spirit lives in us and we're constantly fighting the battle, aren't we? You fight it, I fight it. Because the flesh feels really natural, doesn't it? I mean, it just hangs around. It won't die. It won't go away. And we have to crucify our flesh, the scripture says, because it's at war with the spirit, isn't it? So all the time you have an opportunity to give into the flesh and do something that appeals to your basic nature of who you were, but not who you are in Christ. You have to be mindful of this, even if it makes you happy. Can I ask you a question? Does God want you to be happy? Is that the highest goal that he set out for us is to be happy? I'd love to find that in the scripture because then maybe we could make a case for doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. It's not there. God's called us to be holy, to be in the image of Christ. And so there are some limitations for us. You remember John Locke, I mentioned earlier, he says that the pursuit of happiness leads to our highest happiness, meaning this moral component with it. So happiness can't be me doing whatever I want, whenever I want. That's indulgence. And there's a big difference. So what do you think the apostle Paul means when he says, don't let this freedom lead to an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love? Well, he's giving us another clue about our freedom. Our freedom is not so that we can just do whatever we want to do, but it's so that we can serve others. Now, where would he have gotten that from? Isn't that what Christ came to do? Christ, who had all the freedom in the world to do whatever he wanted to do, came and did he use people for himself? No, he did not. He served them. He gave his life for them. And so when you look at, at what Christ does, you see that his eyes were fixed on the goal. He wasn't trying to, to create an earthly kingdom here. People are always trying to get him to do that. And he could have used them to start a revolt, but he doesn't. Why? Because the cross was more important. He came to serve us. So we look to our brother Christ and we see the example there. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here's another layer of insight, isn't it? Because Paul quotes or sums up, I guess, the entire law with one statement. Jesus did the same thing when he was questioned, what's the greatest commandment that God ever gave? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Second one's just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. With those two, you've summed up the whole law. You got it all. It's all right there. And so when I look at this, I can sum up the law by saying, I need to love my neighbor as myself. And that changes what it means for me to live freely, doesn't it? Because freedom that starts to step on my neighbor and abuse my neighbor or take advantage of my neighbor or consume my neighbor isn't freedom. It's sin. It's problematic. If I'm serving people, I look to their best interests. 
and I look for an opportunity to love them as Christ has loved me. Now, to be sure, I like me a lot. Don't sit there holy because you like you a lot too. I listen to you talk about yourselves and I see what you post on Facebook. You love yourself and I like me. We do, don't we? So it shouldn't be hard to understand with the love that I have for me, I need to love someone else that way. I want what's best for me, so that means that I want what's best for them. I want what's best for me, so I want what's best for you. It even changes how we come together in a church, doesn't it? Because my interest can't be the leading thing of the church. Your interest can't be the leading thing for the church. If we're loving one another like Christ has loved the church, it's sacrificial. It's putting one another ahead of each other. I mean, it's that whole thing of loving in in a way that seeks your good above all else. Look at verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Bite and devour. He's using a, a reference there to the animal kingdom. That's what they do. They, they absolutely tear one another apart. It, it's how wild animals treat each other. And when we think about it that way, it changes our understanding of freedom even more, doesn't it? Because freedom that consumes someone or uses them for my purposes is always wrong. It's wrong. So to answer our question, what is wrong with America? Well, it's that we've removed the creator God, God our Father, as the one who has given us the freedom and we think that the freedoms are just ours for the taking, so they're without limitation. And we've changed the definition of liberty and freedom believing that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and it's free in America to do that and that freedom stands exclusively above everything else. Can I tell you how this plays out in the modern context? Last month, all around our country and the world, people celebrated a month that they called Pride. They encouraged you to wear a t-shirt and stand up for the rights of people to love who they want to love, march in a parade so people can do these kind of things. And those freedoms, when you're exercising those, may sound good. that, That sounds nice. That sounds normal. I should love my neighbor. My neighbor should be able to do whatever they want to do. But it's a freedom that consumes. And if you stand up for one aspect of it, you better be careful because there's another aspect of it that's hiding just below the surface. We used to call it pedophilia. Now we call it, in the new modern age, minor attracted persons. Sounds better, doesn't it? It, it, it whitewashes what used to be a pariah to society and says, this is an okay thing. You're just a minor attracted person. You can use and consume people for your own pleasure, but I'm sorry, you can't. So when we do that, that's not freedom. That's not living in freedom. If my freedom hurts my neighbor, it's wrong. And what we're seeing in America is we want to just change the definitions of everything, but I'm sorry, God made the definition. If it's sin, it's sin. So you can label it how you want it. I can call it whatever I want. But at the end of our days, we have to understand that God, our creator, has given us these things and we are responsible to him for them. How do we find our way during these times? How do we manage You have your Bibles open to 1 Peter. Make a right turn from Galatians and find 1 Peter chapter 2. Here the apostle Peter Peter encourages people of the faith to live in freedom. Very important. Verse 13, he says these words. Submit to every human authority 
because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Uh, now, wait just a second, Pastor. I thought we were talking about freedom today, and now you're talking about submission, and I don't like those two words being coupled together because I really don't like to submit. I find it a little bit arbitrary that we should have to do that, but they go hand in hand because God has set up governments and institutions, and we're to be servants of the Lord as we live under the authority of these institutions. If you read the prophet Jeremiah, God spoke to Jeremiah and said, I want you to tell these people that they are to pray for the benefit and blessing of the city they're living in. Now, I remind you, the city they're living in is that they have been conquered and taken away to a foreign land. Could you put yourself there for just a minute? Imagine that we're not here. I don't know where you don't want to live, but let's just imagine that for a minute. And let's imagine that we're gathered as a group of believers and I, as your pastor, stand up and say, the word of God says that we're to pray for the welfare of the city that we're in, even though they totally broke down our city, ruined the place where we worship, kidnapped us and take us all over here. We're going to pray for the welfare of the city. How would you handle that? I gotta be honest. I think that'd be a very half-hearted prayer on my part. Uh, Lord, thank you for the Babylonians, I guess. They killed my brother. They ruined my house. I don't have a business anymore. I was considered smart over here where I used to live and, and now I'm just working out in a field in a menial job that they've given me because I can't do anything here. I, I can't speak their language. I don't know their customs. I guess I hope this place goes like gets bitter, bigger and better. I, I, I don't know. Could you pray that prayer? Could you do it and, and do it in such a way that you honored the Lord? Because that's exactly what happened here. And I want you to notice the way that it, Peter says that we're to effect change. We honor the rulers of the land and we do good. And that puts foolish people into a state of shocked silence. Now, Jesus honored the rulers of the land. It, he never fought against Caesar. He wasn't trying to take anything away from Caesar. He said, pay the taxes to Caesar. He didn't need to because he was secure in who he was. And we don't need to, to worry about that either. We can be secure in who we are. Now, there are times, certainly, where the line is drawn in the sand and we must resist immoral laws. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that. They would not bow down and worship the false idol, and they were willing to be thrown in the fiery furnace. They were. Well, that's different than what we see most Christians doing today as they talk about their freedoms. Christians today talk about things they don't like. Well, there's a lot of rules that I don't like. You know what I mean? This past summer, I got to go to uh, California. Hadn't been there in many years. And uh, the price of gasoline was really high in California. And I'm not a car guy, but I thought it would be fun to rent a Tesla. Same price, basically, when you washed out the gas. And it was fun. I mean, if you're a car person, I encourage you, go drive one. They're nice, you know? But what's amazing about a Tesla is that there's no lag in the accelerator. Electrical motors don't have 
any lag. So when you hit the gas in your car or in my car and I try to pass somebody, you hear the transmission drop, right, into a lower gear and you hear gas dumped in the engine, you hear the engine rev and, and you go around. But it's not instantaneous, is it? We rented this little Tesla and had the family in it and I just kind of wondered if that was really true. We got to Los Angeles about midnight and we were all settled in our little car driving to where we were going to be staying and I kind of just looked around and then I hit the gas and my wife screamed. (laughs) It was that good, I promise. Yeah. And I was a little annoyed that California has a speed limit of 65. I mean, that just gets old. Because you gave me this supercar, you ought to let me drive it like it's on the Autobahn. You know what I mean? That's what I was thinking. We all have rules we don't like, but there's a difference, isn't there, between an immoral law that we're told to obey that violates what God has told us to do versus a law I don't like. I I know that I may think that there are a lot of laws I can rail against, but I'm gonna be honest with you. You search the scriptures, they're few and far between Maybe not as many as we American Christians would like. Maybe we haven't been so good at modeling for people what it means to live in freedom. Maybe they're taking some of their clues from us. And what they see is us yelling about everything and screaming about everything and I'm not gonna do this, I do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do, I'm free. Not exactly. You know, Peter and and John in the book of Acts were told, you're not allowed to share the gospel anymore. They arrested them and, and they said, whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God, you decide. But as for us, We're gonna keep sharing about the things that we have seen and we have heard. You can't stop us because God's told us to. Daniel was told if he kept praying to anyone but the king, he was gonna be thrown in the lion's den and he decided it was worth it. But that's a different state of being, isn't it? And so I even hesitate to ask this question because I feel like I know the answer, what it should be, but I also see the disconnect in how we live sometimes as believers. Do you honor the president? Do you honor the governor? Do you honor the mayor? I didn't ask you if you voted for them. It's a separate issue, isn't it? Do you honor them? Do you honor the laws of the land? Are you subject to them? I mean, it's it's a different thing, isn't it? And so when I tell us these things and we go like, ooh, I I don't like that. Can I remind you who Peter's writing about when he says, honor the emperor? It's Nero, the first one that persecutes the church, blames the Christians for burning down Rome, says it's their fault. And the Christians are spread out because of that during that time. It's a little bit different, isn't it? It's just different. Every four years in America, you have a chance to be angry. It's just the way that it is. What a privilege. Think about it. We whine about these things. What a privilege. Maybe talk to some of our brethren around the world who have lived in places where you can vote, but it doesn't matter. 
or there's just not gonna have elections anymore. We're just gonna be done with this. And so for us to understand what the scripture is saying to us is so important. We honor. I remind you that maybe you would prefer someone else to be in any one of the offices that you could think of. Maybe you don't have their picture hanging in your home. That's fine. I bet Peter didn't have Nero's picture hanging in his house either. But he understood what it meant to, to honor him. Not only do we honor, but we work. The Bible says they are silenced by our good works. Now, many times we don't believe this, so we adopt the world's methods. We just find a crusade and start yelling about it at the top of our lungs and screaming at people, believing that really changes people. Because when was the last time somebody screamed at you and you thought it was a good idea? Instead, we're told to work. So I, I have something for you. If you'd like to make a difference in the world, why don't you go make a difference in the world? It's easier to yell and talk and do all that than it is to just go make a difference in the world. You, you could make a difference in the world. You could foster a child this week. You could work with us and embrace grace or embrace life. You, you, could, you could teach in one of our student Sunday school classes or our children's Sunday school classes and shape the future generation of leaders that are going to define this country. You could do that or you could watch some more news and yell about it. Our good works are the thing that's supposed to set us apart from the world. And he says by doing it, it silences the ignorant and foolish people of the world. They see that. Jesus said that we'll do these good works and people will glorify our Father who is in heaven. As we do these good works, Peter reminds us just like Paul, make sure that you don't use your freedom as an excuse for evil. Well, I'm good to do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want. You can't. Not and call yourself a Christian. So, is there anything right in the country, Pastor? Yeah. The very thing that is bad is also what's right. The freedoms that you've been afforded allow you to assemble this morning. Isn't that great? By assembling this morning, we worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. We'll take the Lord's Supper here before too long on one of these Sundays, and we'll do exactly what the scripture says. We'll proclaim his death until he comes over and over and over again. We don't have to worry about being dragged out of here today and put in prison for being here. So every time we gather, we're saying something to the world. You may not think it matters, but as they drive by, they see that something's going on here. You've been given freedom to speak. And you say, well... There used to be freedom to speak, but you gotta watch what you say now. But the courts continually uphold that we have freedom of speech. So we have the ability to influence people and win them to Christ and share the love of God with them. We have that freedom. What's wrong with America is what's right with America. We have these freedoms that God has granted us to be able to do these things. We have freedom to pursue the glory of God in our lives to our highest potential, that highest pursuit of happiness the declaration talked about. And in doing so, if we embrace that freedom that Christ bought us with his blood, then we can live a life that's incredible. Even in the midst of great persecution, if it comes, or people that try and silence us, won't matter because our good works, as the scripture says, you overcome evil with good. Is there hope for America? Yeah, there's hope for America. Don't believe the people that say there's not. I'm proud today to be an American. 
I'm not going to sing the song, but I am proud. Every Memorial Day at our house, we start flying the flag of our country and fly it all through the summer because it means something to me. Even recently, I've been around the world to a couple of very nice places. And great people, we were treated wonderfully. There's no place like home. I'm always glad to be back here. And I'm a patriot who will stand beside you to defend this land and to defend the right of people even to be wrong that I disagree with if, if we're so called upon to do it. But there's something that we've got to remember, and Kirk already alluded to it, Pastor Kirk, when he said that our citizenship is somewhere else. When I came back to the States, they wanted to see my passport. I have that passport and I gave it to them. But you know something? I have a Bible that sits up there in my office and it says that in March of 1986, my passport was punched for heaven. Because that's my home. And we live with this duality, don't we? And it's, it's tough. Because you can't separate, if you're from this great nation, you can't separate who you are as an American sometimes from who you are as a Christian. You see the world through the American lens. There's no doubt about it. I do too. But we need to remember that our home isn't here. I was eight years old sitting in the First Baptist Church of Cleveland, Tennessee the day I met the Lord. And on that day, my life was forever changed. What about yours? I hope you're glad to be in America. I hope it's good for you. More than that, I hope you know the Savior. If you don't know the Savior, would you give your life to him today? The Bible simply says, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross for our sins, and that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. Reunited with the Father. Citizens here, but citizens there. From now and through all eternity. Let's thank God for this country and for our citizenship. Father, we recognize that in our country today, there are many who believe that freedom means no restraint. God, we're guilty of that too. So we confess our sin and we confess our frailty before you this morning and receive the forgiveness of that sin that you've given us through Christ. Thank you for allowing us to worship this morning at this church. Thank you for allowing us to sing songs and preach from the word of God without fear. God, how we bless your name. Father, don't give up on our country yet. Turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children as the book of Malachi says will happen in the last days. May we see an outpouring of your grace so that people will be saved. And if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, Lord, our prayer is that they would submit their lives to you and find freedom in Christ. God, how we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. Thank you that our home is now in glory. And Father, we look forward to the day where we will be there, where we will sing the hymn of heaven. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.